The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the renowned website builder that helps you share your story with the world in the most beautiful way. Establish a personal brand, portfolio, or e-commerce store at squarespace.com and use the offer code Guardian to get 10% off. The Guardian Books Podcast with Claire Armistead. Hello and welcome. It's long been assumed that technology is here to help us to make our lives easier. But what if we're wrong? Today we speak to Paul Muldoon about the Surveillance Society and his new collection of poetry. Plus, Nicholas Carr discusses the consequences of giving more and more of our lives over to Satnav and Amazon recommendations. What do we lose in the process of automation? Can poetry be flippant and serious at the same time? And what role does this ancient art form play in the modern world? There can't be many people better qualified to answer this question than the Irish poet Paul Muldoon, a Pulitzer Prize winner, former Oxford professor of poetry and current New Yorker poetry editor. He also plays in a band, Wayside Shrines. They're based in Princeton, where he now teaches. He's just published his 12th collection, 1,000 Things Worth Knowing, which ranges from a short, sweet observation of a giraffe to an angry poem about firing squads and the legacy of empire. Before we get into surveillance, a recurring theme in the book, here's Muldoon reading from the collection. This poem is called Pelt. Now rain rattled the roof of my car, like holy water on a coffin lid. Holy water and mud, landing with a thud, though as I listened, the uproar faded to the stoniest of silences. They piled it on all day, till I gave way to a contentment I'd not felt in years. Not since that winter I'd worn the world against my skin. Worn it fur side in. That's one of the shorter poems from um, 1000 Things Worth Knowing, which is your latest collection, Paul. It's a, a, a bit of an event, a Paul Muldoon collection, isn't it? Well, I'm, I'm not absolutely certain about that. I mean, I would like to think that uh, someone might be interested in reading it. You know, it's terribly difficult. At least I find it difficult as I'm sitting there in the privacy of my own room, imagining anyone ever reading these poems or indeed... Uh, I suppose anyone's poems much but the fact is that uh, thank heavens there are still a few people who read poems as well as as well as write them so I'd be thrilled to think that someone might be interested in, in reading some of these. There's a multitude within it, a multitude of tones, a multitude of registers, a multitude of subjects. The, the, the poem you've just read is quite um, pure and short obviously but there are sort of rackety ones and there are very serious ones and there are quite flippant ones. You know, I think um, it would be fair to say that it is a bit of a, a, a mixum gatherum. If that's the case, um, I, I would welcome that description of it because it seems to me that's a description of how the world is for us. You know, we're not uniformly uh, solemn. 
we're not uniformly flip most of the time. We, we are involve ourselves in a range of emotions and a range of registers. Now, of course, traditionally, one of the things that we've been led to admire in a poem, or indeed any kind of writing, or indeed any work of art, is a, a continuity or a consistency of tone. And one of the things about uh, this book, uh, it seems to me as a casual reader of it myself, is, as you suggest, there's a terrific range of tone, sometimes actually within a single poem, uh, which is, I suppose, to put it crudely, a little bit risky. But it's a risk uh, that I really don't mind taking, or at least that the poems seem not to mind taking. So I like the idea of the poem itself actually been a slightly more capacious vessel within its within its own terms, as well as the book, of course, been a capacious vessel. And as you say, the title, uh, I suppose, is a pointer to that. Uh, it suggests, uh, I suppose, something of um, a rag bag, which is a term that we might think of sometimes as been slightly pejorative, but which I think is actually quite an ameliorative term. I like the the idea of um, a room full of uh, all kinds of items. The title itself actually comes from an encyclopedia of household hints that was published in the mid-19th century, and uh, it was a book in which... uh, one could find uh, advice on how to dig a latrine, how to uh, kill a pig, uh, how to do all the, the important things that we should know about in life. And of course, it was particularly useful for the uh, pioneers, as they styled themselves, as they moved across the American West. And in fact, I came upon the title in a, a biography of Quanah Parker, who was the great uh, Comanche war chief, whose mother, Cynthia Ann Parker, uh, was abducted as a child by the Comanche, and indeed her story became the, I suppose, the template of John Ford's Western, uh, The Searchers. But that was one of the very few books in the vicinity, I think, of her house and in their lives. So I thought it would be an interesting title to borrow, let's say, or maybe even steal. Cover of the book is um, has a, a sort of surveillance point, and it's in Ireland. It's a painting. What is the significance of that? So the cover uh, of the book is uh, drawn from a painting called Watchtower Two by Rita Duffy, and Rita Duffy is a fabulous uh, Northern Irish artist, terrifically witty artist um, who comments. In, in a witty way, on quite weighty matters, including the politics of uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, this particular painting uh, gives us a representation of a, a surveillance point, an army, British Army surveillance point in South Armagh. And I suppose one of the things that, uh, as a citizen, uh, never mind as a writer, that uh, one cannot fail uh, to notice in this era is just how noticed we are. London, for example, I was fascinated uh, 
took whatever it was, two or three, four years ago now, when those uh, riots, there was looting of the stores, and where the culprits, let's call them, were all caught within 24 hours or 48 hours because their images were all captured, as they say, on tape. Now, on one hand, I suppose there's much to be grateful for in, in that fact, but I think there's also there's a there's a slightly uh, sinister aspect to the amount of information that uh, is available on all of us. I suppose uh, that that aspect of the world is is one that uh, I, I think is included in the title One Thousand Things Worth Knowing. And in the poems, it keeps recurring the idea of it of does. I mean, being watched. It does. I mean, we. Um, I mean, there's some question about, I suppose, whether or not certain people know more about us than they did when we lived in a village with uh, 50 people, uh, or we lived in a village with a postmistress, a priest, and a schoolteacher who probably maybe knew more about us than Google does. But it is quite troubling, I find, to realise that. Uh, for example, when one tries to buy something on the internet, each of us gets a slightly different menu. No two people see exactly the same thing when they go on the internet looking for 1,000 things worth knowing. If I were to go on the internet looking for that, I would see something quite different to what you would. So the, there is a, an element which I think is a little scary of... Uh, the way this information is used to market material to us. I do think it's quite troubling. How do you decide which poems to put into a collection and when the collection is ready to be published? Ideally, um, the poems announce themselves um, and their relationship with one another is, is, I suppose, something I keep an eye on as they come into being. So, like many writers, I suppose, um, for me, writing is is a kind of uh, disease-slash-habit-slash-curse. So I write quite a lot. And as the poems come into the world, I keep them uh, in a little folder, a little binder, I'm always fascinated as they come into being as to how the sequence in which one reads them influences how how one reads them. So that if there's one poem, you know, one reads it as a discrete object, I suppose. When there are two poems, actually the sequence in which one reads them influences how one reads them. Um, when there are three of them, it influences them at even more. It's a fascinating business. So over the course of three or four years or five years, perhaps, um, the poems uh, are talking to each other as well as uh, being somewhat discrete objects. I mean, freestanding objects, I should say, perhaps, uh, in themselves. And because they come from one personality or they come through one personality... Uh, at a, over a particular period, I suppose that they tend to um, represent the obsessions that that personality has over that uh, shortish 
period of time. So they, they tend to be off a piece. They tend to be thematically linked. You write lyrics as well. You were, in fact, your last book was a, a collection of lyrics last out last year. The word, the word on the street. D- do you have a different head for lyrics and for poetry? Probably. I mean, you know, I'm, I haven't quite figured that out. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by the subject of song, as it were, and the phenomenon of the song and the phenomenon of the song lyric, uh, which, of course, is akin to the lyric poem, which is the kind of poem that I tend to write. That's to say the short poem, a poem that uh, in many cultures, in many eras, would have been presented with a musical accompaniment to the Accompaniment, in other words, of the lyre, which is why it's called a lyric poem, as, as, as we know. So there is a connection between the two um, activities, but they're still quite separate activities. You know, one could spend hours trying to locate the distinction between the two. There's one waggish description of the of the difference, which is that the song lyric needs music to fill it out, to become what it most might be in the world, right? Uh, so that uh, while there are many songwriters, uh, some of my favourites, Paul Simon, Leonard Cohen, for example, whose song lyrics in some sense stand would stand up on the page, uh, the fact is that even then they don't quite, come into their fullest being without the music. Whereas the poem, uh, to give you the second part of the waggish remark, brings its own music with it. And it tells you, it instructs you, really, ideally, on how it wants to be in the world and what it wants to sound like, what its rhythm might be. Now, I myself, I think, have been drawn to writing lyrics because this is going to sound really strange, I think, but I suppose at some level I don't want to be writing a poem every time I have some kind of quote-unquote bright idea because the fact of the matter is that very few of them, if any, are half as bright as they seem to be at the time. There's a particular aspect of the song lyric which has to do with what I refer to as its pressure per per square inch, which can be a lot lower than most poems. One can get involved much more with uh, cliché, for example. Um, One almost has to in the song lyric uh, than one might ordinarily, at least, in in the conventional poem. So it allows me to... uh, have have fun in a way that I don't necessarily allow myself in the poems. I, I enjoy writing songs. I don't actually necessarily enjoy writing poems. But there is a lot of fun in these poems. I'm going to quote you a line. A line. There's no denying a rooster will put most of us in a flooster. You must have had fun writing that. You know, that, that, that rhyme, for example, um, 
is, again, one of the things I'm interested in doing is sort of pushing things to the edge. I mean, a couplet like that is um, really on the cusp, I would say, between raising a smile because of its um, subject matter, but also raising a smile because of the way it shows itself in the world. I mean, there's a certain, uh, what one would call, um, doggerel-ish aspect to that. If one wanted to dismantle that poem, one would say, well, actually, you know, this is doggerel. This is one step away, and I'm not sure in which direction, from McGonagall. Uh, So I like poems that take risks. Uh, In fact, all of the poems, I think, uh, ideally take take a risk of some kind. And that particular one um, it's is... It's got a great title, another great title. It's Barrage, Balloons, Buck, Alec, Bird, Flu and You. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you like that. And I, I'm glad too that uh, there are those who continue to think that um, uh, humour somehow doesn't quite belong uh, in, in poems. And now, when I was talking earlier on about having fun, in some sense I find song lyrics harder to write but I have much more fun writing them. Um, poems I find very hard to write, which is not to say that there isn't fun involved in the end and that there isn't humour involved in the end. And I love the idea of humour being as fitting a, a topic or subject or whatever for a poem as horror. One of my great uh, heroes in that respect, I have many heroes, but one of them is Lord Byron. I love the way uh, Byron, you know, can can get away with, as it were, a, a rhyme like rooster and flooster, uh, you know, and still touch on uh, topics that are perhaps slightly more serious. I think often as readers we tend to c- confuse seriousness with solemnity. And solemnity is something I'm not particularly interested in, and I think the poems are not particularly interested in, even, even, you know, when the subject matter of some, some of them, I suppose, would be generally perceived as being fairly solemn. That was Paul Muldoon, and this is, in fact, his band, Wayside Shrines. 1,000 Things Worth Knowing is published by Faber and & Faber and is out right now. Coming up, how computers and automation are making our lives less efficient. Our interview with Nicholas Carr after this short message. This new year, make a resolution to dust off that big idea. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace, the powerful platform that gives you simple tools to create a gorgeous website in minutes. With elegant templates, Getty image integration, and marketing tools, you can make your ideas resonate with the world. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. Now, we may be living in a golden age of technological advances, but not all of us are relaxed about the way computer automation is taking over tasks previously performed by humans. One such person is the writer Nicholas Carr, as he explains to Richard Lee. 
what we're starting to learn about automation, at least the modern computer-based automation, is that it can be done well or it can be done poorly. By being done well, I mean it can be a complement to our own human skills and our own human talents and can take over work that has become routine for us and allow us to focus our energies and our attention on harder problems and, and build our talents. Or it can go in the other direction where it simply replaces what we do and turns us, and by taking over kind of the, the hard work, the work that forces us to interact in complicated ways with the world, whether we're doctors or pilots or whatever, then we start to turn into more passive people who are essentially computer operators, watching screens, entering data into prescribed fields. And when you go in that direction, you begin to see a loss of human skill, a loss of human engagement, and a loss of interest in what we do, our, our work or, or our daily lives. And unfortunately, I think we're going, we've been going down the wrong path uh, for a variety of reasons. And the designers of software and other automated systems keep putting the interests of the computer before the interest of the human being. And as a result, we're kind of being sidelined in all sorts of ways. You talk a little bit in the book about a Yerkes-Dodson curve, which is a curve discovered by a couple of researchers working with mice who were going, they had a choice of a white or a black passageway and a kind of variable electric shock that they were given. And surprisingly, it wasn't so much that as the shock got more and more powerful, they remembered better and better which passageway to go down. There was a kind of a sweet spot. Right, a sweet spot between being understimulated, the, the shock is too weak, but then when the shock becomes too strong, uh, it basically overwhelms the mice and they don't learn at all. Um, so there is this kind of sweet spot uh, in terms of the level of stimulation the mice experience that, that when you're at, the, at that peak uh, of that, uh, which is in between too little stimulation and too much, that's when they learn best and perform best. And that's more widely applicable than just mice and voltages, isn't it? Absolutely, and 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 that's why I, you know, discuss it in the in the book is because what we've learned. This experiment was done a little more than a hundred years ago. What psychologists have learned is that this this is a good way to think about the way people learn and perform in general when they're facing some difficult task or difficult challenge. And it turns out that when we're understimulated, uh, when we don't have enough to do, for instance, we perform very poorly and we don't learn very much. We kind of tune out and become complacent. But on the other hand, when we're overstimulated, when we have too much to do, too much information coming at us, for instance, then we then our performance and our learning also drops off sharply. And so there is this middle ground where you're you're deeply engaged in what you're doing without being overwhelmed and that's where we do our best work that also provides a good way to think about how you automate a task well so you don't understimulate the person you make sure people have enough to do and are deeply engaged in the work but you use automation to prevent them from becoming overwhelmed by too many things. And as you say, we've headed on a rather different path of that, whereby we've been handing over as much responsibility as possible to automatic systems for, for example, flying an airplane or for making clinical decisions in, in, in a medical situation. We, we are either understimulating by not giving enough to do, or if something bad happens, suddenly overstimulating with all kinds of alerts. So we've got the worst of both worlds, as it were. That's right. And... and the basic 
kind of assumption that designers make is we're going to make it as easy as possible for the person. We're going to take, we're going to give as much work to the computer as possible. And what happens then is, is people uh, are understimulated. They don't, aren't challenged enough. And so they begin to tune out. They lose their attentiveness. They, they don't pay attention to what they're doing. And then they don't learn. And also if something goes wrong, you know, you have the situation where people have tuned out and then suddenly they have to take over an emergency and they can't do it very well. And then on the other side of the coin, when something does go wrong, suddenly the people have to not only deal with the situation they're in, but they have to look at computer screens and enter data into the computer. So they tend to be overwhelmed uh, at the worst possible moment. And, there are also, and also that raises dangers of not only poor learning and poor, poor performance, but not being able to deal with an emergency. And, you know, if you've, if you've used your sat nav uh, system to get around in your car, for instance, using your Google Maps on your smartphone or something, you've probably experienced this. Most of the time, it's telling you exactly what to do, where to turn. So you kind of tune out of navigation yourself. But then if it leads you astray or you miss a turn, suddenly you have to fiddle with your smartphone while also driving and you're overstimulated. You have too much to do. You're overwhelmed. And so that's a good everyday example of how this kind of phenomenon works. I was struck as well by some of the stuff, some of the, your accounts in the book of how we're often not aware there's something to be lost until we actually start to lose it. You talk about Timothy Hoff's research into automated medical record keeping, which revealed how using computers to take notes encourages doctors to copy and paste text so that electronic records are just cobbled together out of boilerplate, losing subtlety and originally, as he says, the story is just not there. Yeah, and this was one of the most intriguing and illuminating areas of research that I that I came across. Um, you know, the assumption going in was that digitizing medical records would would simply be all to the best. You'd make things more efficient. You'd be able to share medical records more quickly and effectively between doctors. And what actually happens is a lot of the expectations about how this will improve efficiency and uh, quality of care haven't panned out. At least there's no evidence yet uh, of those improvements. But what has happened is that the shift to digital records has changed the way doctors act, behave in lots of different ways. And, and one thing they do is they begin cutting and pasting uh, old records from you know earlier patient visits or from other patients who have similar uh, conditions into the medical record rather than writing or dictating uh, the story of their of that particular visit. There's a general term for this that that the researchers in automation use, and, and they call this an example of the substitution myth, which means when we automate a job, we 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 tend to assume that it's just going to make that particular task that we're automating more efficient, but it isn't going to change anything else about how people behave and perform the work. And in fact, what what happens is that. When you automate even a small part of a job, it tends to have big ramifications in, in across the way the job is done, the way the, the roles of the people, uh, and, and all of these things are very, very hard to predict. So we off, often the biggest effect of automation uh, are those things that the designers did not foresee. So how do you go about designing automatic systems which make the most of our human talents rather than relegating us to some sort of brute operator? the assumption that the designer should take is what are human beings good at? Uh, what's, what are our deepest intellectual and, and 
uh, cognitive skills and how can we bring the computer in or the robot in to aid us in exercising those skills while also providing the kind of unique things that computers can do, kind of offsetting our own biases, providing more information that we might then we can call on from our own uh, resources. And if you have this more balanced approach, uh, you get the best of the computer, but you also provide room for human beings to think and act and develop their own talents. And I think you ultimately have a better system and you also have more interesting uh, and engaging work for people to do. And since we're all people, that seems that to me seems to be a good goal to have. Absolutely. I mean, you cite in the book an example of a photographer who's turned his back on digital cameras and gone back to using an analog systems or architects who are putting digital design towards the end of the process after lots of sketching so they can get back in touch with their kind of the creative impulse of the pen on the paper. But I'm wondering what this kind of resistance technology could look like to, uh, say, an Amazon employee following a computer-generated route through a warehouse or uh, a worker on a robot-powered assembly line. Well, unfortunately, what it would probably look like is the person <laughs> losing their job. Um, when I suggest that there's this very different way we could go about designing automation, I'm on pretty firm ground. If you if you look at the people who study this, they, they make this clear di distinction between technology-centered automation and human-centered automation. That doesn't mean it's easy to move from one to the other. One of the reasons that we become focused on technology-centered automation is because it tends to generate the most immediate efficiency gains, pr pr uh, productivity gains. And of course, a lot of automation comes out of companies investing in software and robots and so forth. And they're, they're inspired to get the most immediate efficiency gains possible. And, and so in order to temper our approach or take a different approach, we come up very, very quickly against commercial and institutional motivations to optimize short-term efficiency. And unfortunately, human learning uh, requires inefficiency. It requires people to have to struggle with hard things, to make mistakes and learn from them. And so in some ways, I see the path a different path we could go down. But I have to say, I'm not particularly optimistic we're going to be able to uh, shift gears and take a new approach without really fundamentally rethinking uh, the relationship between people and work and, and how we organize jobs and, and the short term versus the long term. Lots of very hard things for us to grapple with. I mean, it sounds to me like, I mean, there's a paradigm that you, that you elaborate for how to go about putting humans at the center of this of these technologies. Uh, which is fairly clear, but very easy to sort of chart how you would go about changing things so that there was a more worthwhile working experience for the people who are doing these jobs. Uh, but it sounds like that there's obvious commercial or maybe even political pressures to doing so. Is this, so this, is this rather more a political problem than a technological one? I think it's both. I draw a distinction in the book be between kind of the commercial realm of automation and the personal realm of automation. Uh, because we're also outside of our wage earning work, we're also automating our lives through satellite navigation systems, through Facebook things and Google Maps and other Google services. In that, I think, in that area of, of what I'll call personal automation, a lot of it is up to our own, our own personal choices. Either we can 
make better choices about which applications we use or, and don't use and how we use them, or we can demand from the designers of apps and, and, and other software programs that they not just simply try to relieve us of effort, but take a more sophisticated view of, uh, of what makes our lives meaningful and, and how we engage with the world. So I think on the, on the personal side of automation, in many ways, it would be easier to change our approach simply because as individuals, we have more control. The commercial side of automation, the world of factory robots and uh, decision support systems and medicine and so forth, that to me is a trickier problem. And in, in the people who study this, so-called human factors engineers, are get very frustrated when you talk to them because they, they think in the long run we're making a mistake, but our as long as companies focus is on very short-term efficiency gains, it's hard to change course. I'm wondering if, on a personal level, if you've changed your habits after the research you've done for this book, or do you still use Google Maps? Do you still use a sat-nav? I try to only use it in, in emergencies when, you know, when I'm just lost. It's, it's a huge, obviously a huge benefit if you, if you get lost in a city, for instance, when you're driving around uh, and can reorient yourself quickly. But I try to actually avoid it now when I'm not in an emergency situation, when I'm simply trying to get around. What we see with you know, navigational systems is that our tendency, our, our human tendency is to, is to always go with the most convenient option. So we just, we turn on the sat-nav or, or you know, launch Google Maps and just get the directions. And it seems to me, based on, on my research and, and kind of looking into my own experience, that actually learning to navigate, having some sense of where you are and where you're going is fulfilling and it's important and it gives you a sense of place that you lose very quickly if you simply always go to Google Maps. And also, I think what we're learning about our own navigational system in our mind is that it seems to be very wrapped up in our general systems for memory. And there's at least some speculation or some theories among scientists that by exercising our navigational sense, we also strengthen our memory. And as we get older, that can have important benefits. So uh, I think this is one area where I, I've really, the research has convinced me to be much more wary of computer automation than I was before. Nicholas Carr. His new book, The Glass Cage, Automation and Us, is out now and published by Bodley Head. And that's it for today's programme. Thanks to Richard Lee, Nicholas Carr and Paul Muldoon. If you have any thoughts about this podcast or any ideas about books, issues or people you'd like to hear about, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave comments on the podcast page. If you've come to us through iTunes, that's at theguardian.com slash books. I'm Claire Armistead. The producer this week was Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.